0: Welcome to the VO2 Lounge Podcast, where we discuss all things athletic performance. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about physiological demands and requirements that it takes to become a Rugby World Cup finalist. Rugby union is a team sport with a history dating back to the early 19th century. It involves two teams of 15 players each, aiming to score points by carrying, passing and kicking the ball across the opponent's try line The sport is known for its physical intensity, strategic play and precise ball handling. It's governed by a set of laws and regulations with international tournaments like the Rugby World Cup showcasing high-level competition, the highest level of competition in the sport. And that is why I'm making this episode today, to showcase the physiological demands of a Rugby World Cup final and what it takes to make it that far. I'm going to come into this assuming that if you found this video then you know enough about rugby to know the positions but just for reference we have 8 forwards, 7 backs making up 15 players total. Generically, the backs, smaller individuals, faster, arguably better handling skills but reality in today's game The major difference is the size, the height and mass, really, of the players. Their roles do differ, Um, the forwards taking part in more of the almost close contact and uh, organised, dictated set pieces, whereas the backs are in more open play is where they come into play. I think the best place to really start with all of this is characterising the positions. So what it, it takes is not the same for each position as you can imagine. To understand the differences it's important first to understand some of the differences in demands that forwards and backs um, require effectively. The main role of of the forwards in rugby union is to gain and retain possession of the ball, whereas the backs control possession of the ball to gain territory and score points. Research has shown that rugby union players cover total distances between somewhere around 4,600 and 7,200 metres during match play, with significant differences reported between forwards and backs. Um, Other more recent studies have shown it's be more like 6,500 and 5,900 meters. Obviously, again, lots of players, player-to-player variations, um, with the scrum half almost definitely covering the most distance throughout a game, as they are the one really just following the ball around the pitch. Now, rugby is a contact sport, so understanding how that contact is distributed amongst the players is important. Forwards spend approximately two and a half times longer in high intensity activity than backs up to 90% of which is in static exertion this is attributable to the increased time involved in set piece plays like scrums and lineouts and contests of the ball rucks and mauls important element of rugby union match play that can account for up to 11% of the match time for forwards with the same activity accounting for only approximately 2% of match time for backs. So recent studies using GPS have reported forwards to be involved in a considerably higher number of heavy physical collisions, performing a significantly greater number of contacts, talking about 32 to 38, compared to backs who experienced approximately 16 to 21, respectively. Um, furthermore, due to a large amount of time spent rucking and mauling, forwards spend substantially less time performing high-intensity running or sprint efforts and more time running at a moderate intensity. Similarly, backs who may be further from the breakdown experience considerably less static exertion and collisions, but much greater high-intensity running loads and longer recovery periods. And from this, you can kind of almost foreshadow what this is going to, well how this is going to impact uh, the physiology slash requirements including body composition which is where we're going to move on to next. As you can imagine due to the physical nature of rugby a large emphasis is placed upon uh, body mass and specifically lean body mass in all positions compared with other team uh, based sports uh, like football Lean body mass really is a key driver of player development, particularly in the off season. Um, so, higher body mass has been shown to positively impact many aspects of rugby uh, performance, such as collisions and impacts. Which, since the professionalism of the sport, have increased pressures to succeed, um, has led to a progressive linear shift in the size and physical profile of rugby players exceeding that of the general population. Um, While overall body mass is important to perform at the elite level, the actual composition of body mass is more important to achieve optimal performance. Now, Players possess increasingly higher lean mass and lower body fat than ever before, significantly improving players' power-to-weight ratio. Um, So anthropometric and physiological variations are evident between forwards and backs with forwards tending to be heavier and stronger compared with backs who tend to be leaner and faster. Now this is a generic uh, statement you may yes have stronger backs than some forwards but generally the the mass of the forwards is going to be higher because of the demands on their specific, specific position. Now, these differences are further pronounced in the distinct subgroups of playing positions in Rugby Union due to the requirement uh, for forwards to carry extra weight to compete during um, specific match play demands such as scrummaging, lineouts, rooking and mauling. For example, in the 2011 Rugby World Cup, the tight 5 forwards front row were 113.3 kilos, second rows were 114.2 um whereas heavier than the who were and they were heavier than the back row, forwards who were 107.3, um, who were then heavier than the backs who on average were ninety-two point eight. And within the backs, uh halves were the lightest at eighty seven point eight. centers the heaviest at ninety seven point two. Um And that's the general profile of the uh, back line versus the forward. And this is all obviously 2011 Rugby World Cup. So two cycles ago, but still very much relevant. So sticking within body mass, but slightly shifting it to body composition, uh, forwards are typically uh, comprised of a higher lean mass, accounting for approximately 8% and body fat around 25%, um, whereas uh, backs tend to be on average lower than this, which highlights a larger strength demand placed upon forwards during uh, contacts. It has been proposed that the higher body fat observed in forwards may also be considered advantageous when withstanding the impact forces associated with tackles and collisions. Although it's now believed that the excess body fat has detrimental effects upon performance due to a reduced heat dissipating ability and increased metabolic demands of course of carrying that extra weight and effectively the insulating effects of uh, that fat mass. It has also been reported that lower lean mass and higher skinfold thickness are associated with reduced tackling ability. Higher lean mass contributes to a total mass. uh, Sorry, higher lean mass contributing to total mass is therefore considered a more appropriate uh, physical attribute for the modern rugby player, translating to increased strength and power during competition. Um, Now, with progressing levels of competition, there is also a linear increase in the height of rugby players, as you would somewhat expect. A position correlation between a positive correlation between the mean team height and final ranking in the Rugby Union World Cup tournaments is evident from this, with the taller teams performing better in comparison to the teams who are shorter on average. Now marked differences in the height of forwards and backs are also uh, displayed due to distinct positional demands. For example, Greater height is advantageous for, uh, for second row players who are required to compete for the ball up to three and a half meters from the ground. This is obviously during lineouts and have been shown to be the tallest playing position at approximately 1.98 meters on average. The remaining forwards are all shorter than the second row players, with back row forwards being about 1.9 meters. Uh, who are taller than the front row who are 1.84 and the differences in height amongst the backs are more homogenous being uh, 1.83 across the board on average really. Now obviously that that height is somewhat selective so it's more likely that obviously the taller you are the more likely you're going to shift over to the forwards especially the second row because of how advantageous it is and the shorter, larger, heavier players tend to then get shifted towards the front row because obviously you don't need to do um, the aerial work. Now, the reason probably then also on top of that getting these shorter backs is simply um, possibly also to do with mass and just carrying round weight and being uh, less able to accelerate quickly just simply due to that difference in weight. Now, with that, we've really characterised what the first of all, in general, what the players are looking like, but also how it differs between positions on a broad level between forwards and backs, but also on a bit more of a macro level between each individual position. Now, a lot of this you could have probably told, well, you could have noticed by just simply watching a game of rugby, but maybe you have wondered. If you're further out of the sport, why these differences are present or in the sport and wanted just some more detail almost on why these differences are present slash how large are these differences at the elite level. Now moving on from this, we move on to match playing demands and the physiological and metabolic demands of a rugby match. The reduced exercise performance of players through a rugby match is very much a multifactorial issue. However, the main cause is thought to be glycogen depletion. This makes a lot of sense seeing that in endurance sports the development of fatigue has a strong association with reduced muscle glycogen. Now, Peripheral and cognitive fatigue resulting from muscle glycogen concentration leads to uh, reductions in both physical and technical performance. It's thought that the decline in the calcium CA2 plus releases from the sarcoplasmic reticulum reduces muscle force production which may hinder maximal high intensity efforts such as single repeated sprints, acceleration, um, contacts and sudden changes of direction. Given a game is 80 minutes of which only 34 minutes approximately is actual ball in playtime, there doesn't seem to be a massive reason for a full carb load, but simply to uh, be conscious of the demands and fuel accordingly for that. I think trying to compare rugby to an endurance sport in the sense that that sort of carb load, like a 10 grams per kilogram, there there were... bits of research talking about carb loads that large, but there were equally bits of research talking about how glycogen was not really fully depleted, and if these people came, these athletes come in just with a generally topped off level of glycogen storage like they're not trying to diet on their way into a match then they're going to have adequate stores to deal with the demands of the mat. Now, as you can imagine, during a rugby match there is going to be muscle damage that occurs. Now, exercise-induced muscle damage is a common condition that occurs after engaging in unfamiliar or intense physical activities involving repetitive muscle contractions or eccentric movements. It is marked by the disruption of myofibrils in the muscles, leading to an inflammatory response and changes in the excitation-contraction coupling process. Now, exercise-induced muscle damage manifests as muscle tenderness, aching, swelling, and increased levels of blood myofibre proteins, such as creatine kinase and myoglobin. Furthermore, there is is evidence of low-frequency neuromuscular fatigue, resulting in a loss of muscle force at low stimulation frequencies, particularly significant in athletes. This low-frequency fatigue is linked to a reduction in release of calcium ions, within the muscle cell, potentially hindering recovery for days following the exercise. Um, plasma creatine kinase levels are often used as an indirect marker of muscle damage, increasing response to exercise, with individual variability in the extent of this increase among high responders and low responders. Now in the context of rugby and other context sports like rugby union and um any other form of contact sport really, there are uh, substantial increases in in, uh, creatine kinase levels following matches. These elevated levels can persist for up to 96 hours post-match, indicating significant muscle damage during the match. The number of collisions during these sports is associated with increased tissue trauma, suggesting that both blunt trauma and mechanical damage play a role. Our contact small sided games result in larger creatine inten- creating increases compared to non contact games. So, rugby, characterized by rapid changes in direction and high impact collisions, leads to structural muscle damage. There'll also be for the forward some element of muscle damage from, say, for example, lifting in line out, scrummaging. These things will still place load on the muscles and still result in some element of damage. Now static exertions such as scrummaging, mauling and rucking in rugby along with high impact collisions are associated with the extensive tissue trauma and inflammation. Now muscle soreness typically peaks 24 hours post-exercise and remains elevated for several days post-exercise. Now similar observations are reported in um other sports like Aussie rules football um, indicating that these sports are associated with tissue damage and low frequency fatigue in the days following a game Now, despite the importance of optimal recovery for performance it's unclear how the muscle membrane damage affects muscle glycogen replenishment in the days following such strenuous physical activity. Now with the physical contact and the damage that occurs from that sort of out of the way time to sort of take a look at substrate requirements. Now substrate requirements are something I've spoken before about in regarding endurance sports so why not look into them specific to rugby. During short intensity exercise lasting between one and two minutes the primary source of um, energy is adenosine triphosphate. Now this utilisation of phosphocreatine contributing to about 70% 70% of ATP production within the first three seconds of maximal muscle contraction. After this initial burst, the rate of PCR breakdown decreases and ATP production shifts to glycolysis and aerobic oxidation of carbohydrates and fats. Now, the majority of glycogen in humans is stored in the muscle cells ranging from 350 fifty to 700 grams and the rest of it in the liver accounts for about 100 grams. The amount of stored glycogen can vary depending on factors like training status, diet, muscle fiber composition sex and body weight. So with heavier people in particular usually especially if you've got more lean mass being able to store more glycogen. Now glycogen stores can be reduced through factors such as low dietary carbohydrate intake, fasting or exercise. In this case we're really concerned about how they're depleted during exercise. Now high intensity exercise tends to utilize intramyofibrillar glycogen alongside lipid oxidation for energy production which is essentially relevant in team sports like rugby. Sorry, especially relevant. Uh, the intensity and duration of exercise as well as the athlete's training level determine the relative use of different energy sources during exercise. Now, during moderate intensity exercise, being 30 to 65% VO2 max, fat is the primary energy source, but as exercise intensity increases, carbohydrate oxidation, with a focus on muscle glycogen, becomes more crucial. Now, despite the relatively small stores of carbohydrates compared to fat in the body, carbohydrates can be mobilized and oxidized quickly enough to meet the energy demands of high-intensity exercise. In conditions of low glycogen availability, there's a simultaneous release of amino acids from muscle and an increase in fatty acid mobilization. This allows for a sustainable lipid oxidation and a reduction in exotide. Exercise intensity. This shift towards lipid oxidiza- oxidation, sorry, due to a low glycogen availability, uh, has been observed in sports like football during the latter stages of a match, with an increase in free fatty acid indicating an increased reliance on lipids as a fuel source as the muscle glycogen levels decline. Given the crucial role of muscle glycogen in sustaining intense exercise and enhancing performance, research has focused on the optimizing methods to load and replenish glycogen stores, but there's a lack of such research into contact sports like rugby. Now to some extent, I wonder whether that is because they've observed that, say in an endurance sport like a marathon or a, a stage of the tour or a classic, they are clearly, even when loaded, depleting glycogen. Now, if you could find a way of storing more, that is performance enhancing. Whereas there's a possibility that if a rugby player is simply, they may be loading too much, and you may be just adding unnecessary weight. So, that's my thought as to why there isn't necessarily like a plethora of information on... Uh, optimal methods for loading in relation to contact sports such as rugby. Now this leaves us with only one factor really left to discuss and that's refueling post-match. How are these players getting fuel back into the body post-game because especially when you getting to the pointier end of the World Cup or even at the earlier stage, or even where we take it, remove it from the World Cup and just talk when they're in uh, the league scenario, you will play on a Saturday or a Sunday, then you've got training maybe four or five times a week, you're lifting weights, you're then playing again, how do you encapsulate all of this and still refuel? So in a and no bigger time than really the World Cup. So post-exercise glycogen resynthesis in muscles occurs in two phases. The initial rapid phase lasting up to two hours is independent of insulin and occurs if muscle glycogen uh, con- concentrations are below 150 uh, millimol per kilogramme. Now, lower concentrations result in faster glycogen resi- um, resynthesis. It's almost like a greater gradient means it just gets sort of shoved in there. The the difference between what's outside and inside is greater, so it just a bit like osmosis just floods right in. Now, the second insulin-dependent phase can last up to 48 hours and is characterized by the increased insulin sensitivity in the muscles. However, In damaged skeletal muscles, such as in exercise-induced muscle damage, glycogen resynthesis may be reduced due to the impaired glucose uptake into the muscles. This could be related to factors such as the cytokine-inducible enzyme activity and presence of intramuscular inflammatory cells that compete for glucose. Now eccentric exercises, such as uh, seen in uh, football for example, match play, is known to impair most exercise glycogen, uh, post-exercise glycogen uh, resynthesis, leading to reductions in muscle glycogen replenishment. Now. Various intrinsic factors such as training status, the type of sporting event, for example, endurance, power, team sport, and individual variations significantly influence an athlete's ability to synthesize muscle glycogen. Now, trained individuals may have an increased glucose uptake due to the higher GLUT4 carrier protein content in muscles, which can vary among athletes. Now, high-intensity intermittent uh, athletes like rugby players require a unique phenotype with a combination of high oxidative capacity and strength and power. Now the specific demands of rugby match play which include repeated high speed collisions and static exertions have not been extensively studied regarding their impact on muscle glycogen uh, repl- uh, replenishment after rugby competition and in general there just wasn't particularly large amount but you can imagine that most has already been said about it being inhibited a bit but really that two hour window post game is the time to start really refeeding and shoving in fuel now that wraps things up for this episode now if you've made it this far greatly appreciative but i also have something for you i have recently made a discord server titled the vo2 lounge There will be a link to the Discord server in the description. But more importantly, that is a place where you'll be able to give feedback. It's a place where you'll be able to make recommendations for future episodes. And it also will eventually, once we build a community, be a place to discuss topics such as this with more like-minded people. Now for more content like this, explore my previous episodes and consider following, rating and sharing the podcast with whoever you would like to share it with. Share your thoughts or suggestions on future topics at the vo2lounge at gmail.com or the vo2lounge discord server. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, it'll be goodbye.